Welcome to Church Online. I am so excited that you have joined us this morning. I'm Pastor Matt. I pray that our worship will be exciting and uplifting. I pray that the ministry of the Word will work in your heart and that the Lord will do something special. Thank you again for joining us and enjoy the service. Well, you know how like when, you're, when your favorite show is the new season's over and you kind of have to watch some filler between that and what's coming next? That's me today. So enjoy watching reruns of The Office this 11, 11 o'clock hour today because that's what I do in between shows. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I guess to, to premise today's message, I've already preached this once, so I know it's coming, and you don't, so I've got an edge. Um, but, you know, when... Think about when you run into an old friend and you have one of those conversations where they're like, hey, what are you up to? And you're like, you're thinking about what's been going on, but you're like, I also don't feel like giving them every detail that's been happening in my life. And then you're like, ah, same old, same old, you know, am I the only one that does that? Okay, never mind. Forget that whole thing. Um, No, but that's my my message title today, same old, same old. And as we kind of move through it, you'll kind of see, you'll kind of see why I've titled it that. Uh, so if you take your Bibles and you turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, that's kind of where we'll be uh, working from today. We'll pop over to a couple different places, but that's where we'll be. Uh, or if you're electronic and you would like to follow along in the program, all of my sermon notes and all the scriptures are there too. That's probably the, the, the easiest way to go. Uh, so as believers, and hopefully you guys can track with me on this, we all experience uh, highs and lows, victories, failures. Uh, everything in between. And so David's life, as we'll see in this passage, is certainly no exception to that at all. Um, you know, David is a kind of guy, when we think about him and we think about uh, the hallmarks of his life, we think about David, the giant killer. We think about David, who was the shepherd boy, who was made the rightful king of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart. We think about the David who was probably the best king that Israel ever had. And under his leadership, the borders of Israel were constantly expanding. They were experiencing economic success. Uh, The name of Yahweh was being proclaimed among the nations, as was Israel's purpose. And so, you know, the story of David, especially if you read children's books, it's always this glossed over, very high note version of his story. Um, But where we're going to go today is really kind of where things take a huge downturn for him. Um, it was, uh, you know, chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. They're, you know, it's a fresh, crazy military victory, nothing short of what you'd expect from David. Um, but chapter 11 is kind of where things take a shift, and it's probably the lowest point uh, in David's life. And so, by way of encouragement, it, this is kind of, there's a lot to chew on uh, in, this, in this message, in this text. Uh, but if you hang with me, I promise it'll be worth it, and I promise that you guys will walk away with something. At least that's my prayer today. Um, so if you want to uh, jump in with me here, 2 Samuel 11, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now we've got 17 verses to cover. I promise I'll read fast if you listen fast. And then that's the heavy reading. We're done. We're going to front load it. So verse 1, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, 
the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and she had purified. And and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived; she got pregnant. And she sent and told David and said, "I am pregnant." And David sent to Joab, saying, "Send me Uriah the Hittite, who was her husband." And so Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And so he, so he invites this guy over, and he's like, so Uriah, tell me, about, uh, tell me about what's going on in the battlefield. Tell me about Joab. Tell me about the troops. You know, give me everything that's going on. Um, and then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is a euphemism for something else that we don't have to talk about today. Um, and Uriah went out of the king's house, and a, a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all, all, um, lost my spot here, with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you go. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk, made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Tragic story. Um, I wanted to read the whole thing to kind of give you guys that, the whole effect at one time. Um, and if you're not familiar with this story, this is kind of where, you know, David writes a lot of psalms after this. And we've got a lot of good um, material that comes from the situation. But this right here is, is something that is probably, his failure outshines all of the achievements that he's made in his life. And this is by far his lowest point. And I think what I want to, really what I want to drill down on today, and you'll see as we move forward, but David is not... Though this is a unique situation, David is not unique. Though we can look at this and say, wow, I would never do something like that, that's actually not the case. And I think the sooner that we all realize that, the better off that we will be. So when we read this passage, man, it's kind of dark in here, huh? Not like light dark, just like dark vibes from that story. Just want to throw that out there. (laughs) Um, But... You, you read a story like this, and you, you, it, you, know, you can ask yourself a couple of questions that, that come to mind when you read it. Like, why, why did this happen? You know, whose fault really is it? And I've heard probably dozens of sermons on why this is all Bathsheba's fault. We've all heard sermons like that. Maybe you haven't, just me. I don't know. Uh, were there circumstances that we don't know about? Was there something in the workings here that was already in motion 
uh, before we have this chapter where their, their relationship together ends up with her getting pregnant out of wedlock? Is there more to the story? And truth of the matter is we can speculate, but we really don't know. And so I want to tackle a couple of those things just, you know, so we can get to the meat of what's going on here. So there's a phrase in the beginning that says, in the spring, when kings go out to battle, David stayed at home. And you can look at that and you can be like, okay, well, why didn't David go out to battle? Did he, you know, did this whole thing happen because he wasn't where he was supposed to be? And you can kind of draw that conclusion at first glance, but when you really step back and think about it, uh, there's an excerpt from a commentary there in the program if you'd like to read it. But the long short of it is that it was such a sure victory for David's army, there was really no reason for him to be there. And in the spring, I, I don't know if you know this, I learned this, I thought it was pretty neat this week, but apparently in the ancient Near East, like they just took a break from fighting each other in the winter. I don't really know why they did that, except, well, I mean, it's cold, but like, you know, they just took a break. <laughs> like, all right, it's cold, we're going to go home for a couple months and have some soup and cocoa, and then we'll, we'll come back at it in a couple months. How's about that? It's really weird, but it's a thing, so, so I've come to learn. Um, so that was a new fun fact for me when I was studying for this. Um, but David's, his presence really wasn't needed. Um, you know, he wasn't there. He didn't need to be there. And so it's really not about the fact that he wasn't where he was supposed to be. I would say that the, the heart of the situation is his heart was not where it was supposed to be. I think that's the, the core of the issue here. So, okay, so it's not that. Was it because Bathsheba was being inappropriate? You read the story, and, you know, I've heard it time and time again. Why was this woman bathing in public? You're just asking for it if you're taking a bath out in public, right? And the king can see you from the top of his palace. Surely it's her fault. And you could think about that, and in today's context, if we saw somebody bathing outside, it'd be really weird. And, you know, <laughs> David probably had the first pair of binoculars. I don't know what kind of guy he was. But, <laughs> um, you know... But that'd be really weird if that happened today. And so, of course, we read that, and we're like, oh, well, yeah, she obviously wanted the king to see her, so this is obviously all her fault. But here's the, here's the reality of it, though. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have, like, plumbing and running water and all these things, at least in the form that we have it today. And so unless you were extremely wealthy, i.e. having family in the king's army, and you live close to the king's palace, like she did, um, unless you had that, your, your lot in life was you bathed communally in like a river or, in, some, or in, a, in a lake or something like that with everybody else in your community. Sounds really weird to us, but that's, that was life in the ancient Near East a couple thousand years ago. And so what we find here in the story is not, you know, she actually was less exposed than the average woman would have been exposed. David sought her out. This was not a promiscuity issue. And as much as we would like to see it that way sometimes, or some of us, should I say, um, that's, that's not what it was. It wasn't a promiscuity issue. She wasn't being inappropriate. Was there more going on behind the scenes? Maybe, but scripture doesn't tell us that, so it's probably not important. Um, so it wasn't Bathsheba. It wasn't the fact that David didn't go to war. What was it? It's the same old, same old. If you can encapsulate that in just a couple words, that's, that's what it is. Scripture is clear that David's actions were immoral, and they brought death and chaos to his life and to his kingdom. His people bore consequences for what he did. And in this very story, you have one woman that was abused, that was forced to do something with the king that she probably didn't want to do, and she gets pregnant, and her husband is killed by said king. 
and some of his other soldiers were killed in this act because of the nature of the cover-up and what he did. So there's a lot going on here that's, that's just, it's just not good. It brought a lot of death, a lot of chaos, and I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a, when you hear a political hit job today, like it, you could ruin somebody's whole, you know, political tenure with just one little thing, much less something like this that takes place that is very horrible, very dishonoring. And so that's, that's what we're dealing with. And so the cause of David's fall was, was not due to external circumstances. It was due to internal circumstances of his heart that caused him to fail. This was a, a heart issue. This was, we can't place the blame on anybody else in this situation other than David. And I think, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, that's, the, that's pretty much the only approach you can take here. Same old, same old. So what makes this story, though, hit home, and I think this is where we're going to park for the rest of the, the message here, is, is how the author of 2 Samuel frames the story. The story and its consequences look all too familiar when you parallel them with another familiar story. And if you read ahead in the program, you're ahead of the game, you know. But what happens when the, okay, so just brief lesson on parallelisms. Long word. But these are, you know, in the ancient Near East, when scripture was written, they didn't have paper Bibles. And so what they would do was they would write things and phrase things a certain way that were easy to remember. That's why they used like the Psalms and Genesis, the creation song. It's very easy to remember because it would be sung to like the tune of music. And they would use different literary devices to make things easier to understand, easy to remember. And so one of those things that they do is they use parallels and they frame and say things the same way about different stories. And so what we find in 2 Samuel 11 is it's framed exactly the same way as a story that we see in Genesis 3, and that's so important. So I'm going to read a couple passages from Genesis 3. They're not going to be on the screen because I kind of chopped them up, but they're going to be in the program if you have that. So we're going to read these side by side, and you'll see exactly what I'm saying. Genesis 3, um, we'll skip ahead to Eve seeing the tree. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to their eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took, these two key words right here, saw and took, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Next one. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then following up on the consequences of that, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Those were the consequences of their actions. And so if you read that through and you kind of identify these key themes, what you've got is you have Eve seeing and desiring what this tree has to offer, and then you have her taking. And then after this all has taken place, there is a cover-up that takes place. What was the first thing they did when they heard God in the garden? They what? They hid. They covered it up. They didn't want it to be seen. Hi, Keith. How are you? Good to see you, buddy. Have a nice trip to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to. Um, I'm his ride home, so he's good. Um, so you have the, the seeing, the desire, the taking, and then you have the cover-up. What happens after the fact? And then you have the consequence, right? God said, listen, I told you that if you ate of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. In Hebrew, it's die-die, like very sure that you will die. That's how they phrase it. And then we hop over. It, it could not be more clear. If you eat this, you will die-die. Cannot make it any more clear. 
God is very clear. He is not the author of confusion. Uh, 2 Samuel 11, we'll read some parallel phrases there. And this is, and for, for all of you who maybe this is like a new concept for you, uh, this happens, these parallels happen all the time. I've just picked out two for today. Um, but if you would like to read parallels, I would just Google it, and you can see how these things kind of line up. It's really neat. Um, 2 Samuel 11, so tracking through what we just read. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance, just like the, the tree in the garden was very beautiful. And this isn't in, your, in the program notes there, but even the, what is used to describe the beauty of the woman and the tree is the same word. It's the same. It doesn't come through quite in English, but it's the same, the same word. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he laid with her. Cover up. He had written a letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. David's cover-up is a bit more severe, but it's still a cover-up. And then finally, the consequence of David's actions, we find um, a couple paragraphs later. I didn't get to that in our main reading, but, um, you know, when, when Bathsheba gets, gets pregnant, God says this, However, because this deed you have given, occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Same phrase, same. So when we boil this down... You have really, it's really the same, it's the same thing. It's the same sequence of things happening in each event. And we can look at that and we can say, oh, that's, that's pretty cool that they wrote it that way. But why? Why would they frame it this way? What's the, you know, why couldn't they tell the story in a different way? Why frame it the same way as the Eden narrative? And I think to me, and you may disagree, but I think to me the answer is pretty clear that they're framing it the same way so that you notice it and that we take away something from it. And to me today as we, we talk about this, I think the takeaway is that ultimately these two situations are very different, but they're also very much so the same. Varying degrees, you know, we, we see a lot of evil in our world to varying degrees, but ultimately all of it falls into these brackets, Ultimately, all of it finds its root in the same thing that we found in David's story and in the garden. I see this, and I want it. And even though I know that it's not right for me to take it, I'm going to take it anyway. That's, that's the root principle in play. And if you read uh, Genesis uh, 1 through 3, you'll see that God calls a lot of things good. And the next time somebody calls something good that's not God is Eve when she said, I think that tree, the fruit of that tree is good for me. And that was, it wasn't the fruit, right? It's not about what was on that tree that made sin enter the world. What it was about, though, is it was about the fact that the humans had now decided, I know that God said I shouldn't do this, but I'm deciding for myself now to decide what is moral and what is not moral. And for me, this is a good decision. Does that sound very much so like the culture that we live in today, where we say, God may say this is immoral, but I think it's fine. And because I think it's fine and it makes me happy, then I'm going to do it and you can't say anything about it. Holy cow, it's the, sa it's the same stuff. You, you really, you can't make this stuff up. Okay, so to kind of bridge the gap here a little bit, how many of y'all have seen the new Top Gun movie? Okay, a lot more hands than the 9 a.m. hour. I asked that question and like one hand shot up and I was like, all right, we're going to have to talk about a different movie then. That's okay. 
I'm not a huge Top Gun fan. My son's name is certainly not Maverick, um, you know. <laughs> but anyway, but I, so when that movie came out, I was like, the trailer came out years ago, and I was like, this is going to be awesome. I love the first Top Gun film so much, and I can't wait to see it. And I go see it, and it gets some scrutiny because everybody's like, it's like the same movie, you know. Maverick should be ejected from the Navy in the beginning. He gets called back to Top Gun. There's some cool fighter jet scenes. He loses a wing. It's like the same, spoiler alerts, right? It's like the same movie. Look, if you haven't seen it yet, I've got it on Prime. I'll share it with you. It's cool. Um, but it's like the same movie. Like what they did is so, where's Joe at? Is Joe in here? There you are. It's very artistic. Isn't it how they pretty much did the same movie but different? It's awesome. It's like the best movie out there. You should go see it. I don't endorse any of the language in it, though. Um, anyway, so, but moral of the story, right? You have one movie that is 30 years old, and then you have a new movie. And they're somehow two completely different stories, but the plot is, is pretty much the same. And some people would call that lazy writing. Other people would say, no, that's a masterpiece for them doing that and communicating that that way. And scripture is, <laughs> is not anywhere in the same realm as Top Gun, right? Top Gun's way cool. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, but you get what I'm saying. It's the, the idea of, you know, it's patterning. You're taking the same story and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're putting in different details, but it's really, it's like the same thing. And so that's what they're doing here to hammer home uh, this point. And so the way that the writer frames the story shows us one significant truth, that Adam and David and all of us have a different story, but we share the same problem. We all share this, this same sin that is in our world that, that messes things up, and we all give in to our own desires. And we all put ourselves in positions where we bring death into relationships, or maybe even physically, because of decisions that we make, because of things that we do. And when we're ashamed of those decisions and the things that we say and do, we try to cover them up to make them look like things that they really aren't. And then there's consequences to bear on the back end. But yet we always are like, man, why am I getting treated this way? Why is God treating me so harshly? And it's like, well, have you looked at the, have you looked at the pattern of, of, of what you're doing in your life? And so with this repetition, it's clear that God wants us to know that the pattern of behavior isn't unique to Adam, to Eve, to David, to Moses, to everybody else who falls victim to this, this pattern of, of behavior that we see in Scripture. It's a trap that we all fall into and we need to be aware and, you know, this is a, these are all sobering ideas and sobering thoughts because really what Scripture is teaching is at our core, we are very dangerous to ourselves and to those around us. And we need to be aware of that. Um, First Peter says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, your enemy is out there and he is fully aware of human behavior. He's been watching it for thousands and thousands of years. And he knows that without the Lord's help that we are all going to fall right in line to the same pattern, to the same plights, and to the same failures. All he has to do is put the right thing in front of us to say, hey, listen, I know that God said you shouldn't do that. Are you sure he said that? Are you sure that's not going to be good for you? Are you sure that that's not going to harm your family, right? He's out there, and he knows you better than you know you. He really does. And that's, the, and that's the scary part. 
And so when we think about these things, think about these patterns, think about the fact that we are all victim to them, we owe it to our Lord, number one, and to our families to be on the lookout and to keep ourselves in check according to this little formula that Scripture gives us. And so if we want to change our outcome, we got to start at the root, right? If a tree grows, you can't kill it by hitting the trunk. you got to kill it by taking up the roots. And so desires, let's look at it this way, and this will kind of help us practically play it out. Desires determine decisions. Decisions determine direction. I probably got that from somewhere. I just wrote it down because I thought it was good. Um, but it's the truth. If you don't like where you're going, if you don't like where your life is headed, then you can take a look at decisions that you've made. And if you don't like those decisions, you can take a look at those decisions and you can see, what did I desire? What did I want that made me make those decisions? Because the root of all of this right here in both stories that we talked about was an unhealthy desire. That was the root of it. Things that we know that we want and we know that we should not have or should not want, but we take it for ourselves anyway because we rationalize in our head that it's good. And I said last hour in the service, it's like me when I go to a car dealership. I can't go. Like, I can't go to a car dealer because I always leave with a car, right? Like, I see it, I want it, I know I shouldn't get it or trade mine in or whatever, but I end up leaving with one, right? It's just a, it's my cross to bear, okay? <laughs> it's not a good thing. Um, so because of that, I don't go to car dealerships ever unless I'm absolutely sure that I need to buy a car. Um, anyway, back to the regularly scheduled programming. So with that in mind, the Spirit of God is the only person in our lives that is actually capable of reversing this kind of behavior. Because up until Jesus came, it was just human depravity, right? Or rather, I guess you could say Israel, but you know, up until you know, God intervenes in the lives of humanity, there's really nothing stopping us from just accelerating and getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But the clock starts over with Jesus, where the Spirit enters the world, he enters our hearts, and he is now the person and the only force in the universe that is counteracting all of the evil in our world and producing good. And so we have to see that the only way that we can combat this is through the Spirit. If you think that you can go out and change your life in a positive way tomorrow without the help of the Spirit, you're wrong. You're just wrong. And so with that being said, Paul said this, or I'm sorry, yeah, Galatians 5.16, uh, Paul said this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul said, hey, guess what? You have the spirit, so you don't do the things that you want to do. And you're like, that's kind of mean. And God says, no. Do you realize how bad the things are that you want? And that's why it's so hard to follow Jesus, because everything about it, is counter, like, the, it's the opposite of what we naturally want and desire to do. That's why it's difficult. That's why when people, you know, they, they get saved, they, they follow Jesus, and they're like, man, this is great, I love this, there's so much freedom and so much joy, and then it gets difficult, and they're like, well, this stinks. What do you mean I can't have what I want? What do you mean I have to live, live by the Spirit, and I have to tell my flesh no to things? Like, that, it, it's difficult. It's not easy. And anybody who tells you the, the opposite of that is just a liar. It's not easy. And so Paul says the only way that's possible is by walking in the Spirit because the Spirit is actually the one that says, hey, no, don't do that. Hey, you shouldn't say that to that person. Hey, you shouldn't fill in the blank. Or hey, you should do X. It's both. And so that being said, it's the, it's the, he's the only way. 
period. That's it. And so with this in mind, let's just encapsulate this thought really quick, and then I have three questions, and then we're going home. Does that sound good? Awesome. Just some stuff for you all to think about today. Um, But, no, this matters a lot. And when we look at this pattern, when we look at how Scripture lays this out, and we have to look at this and say, wow, and we have to meditate on it. Scripture is meditation literature, right? We have to think about it, and we have to look at these things and say, wow, where do I land? How, where do I fall on this spectrum, spectrum of, of living a self-centered, self-pleasing life and living by the Spirit? Where am I? And so I've, I've got just a, a couple of quick questions when we talk about this idea of seeing, taking, cover-up, consequence. That's the string, of, the string of things, right? That's the litmus test. Desires, desi, desi, bleh, desi, too many like alliterated things. I messed up with that. My tongue can't move that fast. Um, desires, decisions, direction. If you don't like where your direction is, you got to work backwards. So question number one, what determines your desires? You ever ask yourself that question before? Because we all know what we want, right? We all want something, regardless of what it is. And, but we never ask ourselves, well, why do I want that thing? Why do I want the job that I want? Why do I want the relationship or the marriage that I want? Why do I want fill in the blank. And I think a lot of times when you ask yourself this question, why do I want this job? Well, I think that's going to make me happy. Why, why do you want to marry that person? Well, they make me happy. And guess what? When they cease to make you happy, that marriage is done. When we do things because of how things make us feel, it's fickle and it's temporary. And so we have to ask ourselves the, these, these honest, thought-provoking questions. Why do we really want what we want? Why are we pursuing what it is that we're pursuing in this life? Because our life is, is but a vapor. It's very short. And so what you do matters from an eternal perspective. What, what you do and what you say has everything to do with somebody else coming to know Jesus, which means that our, our thoughts and, and what we want, it should be centered around that. And so if your desires aren't fueled by your mission, as a believer, if they're not fueled by that, your, your desires become the mission. What you want ends up becoming what you live your life for. And we can think about Solomon, who wrote um, Ecclesiastes. He gets to the end of his life, he's got all the riches, he's got the kingdom, and he says, life is vanity. Like, this is all vain. None of it means anything. But we never listen, <laughs> right? We say that and we're like, yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work some overtime this week so I can buy that new TV, right? Not that there's anything wrong with buying things, right? But my wife was just telling me last night, we should get a TV. And I was like, yeah, we should get a new TV. We've had the same one for like seven years. So it's cool. Some of y'all have probably had a TV longer than that. But that to me is a long time because I'm 27. That's like almost a third of my life I've had the the same TV. (laughs) So you got to look at it from that perspective. Help me out a little bit. (laughs) But what what, (laughs) what determines your desire? It's a Samsung TV. It's a good one, you know? It's got 1080, but that's as far as it goes. No HDR, no 4K, none of that. But I want that. Those are my desires. So anyway, uh, Psalm, and you're, uh, got, myself off, got myself off my train here. Hang on, let me get back on it. Uh, but desires, right? Man, Roy, you go to the bathroom a lot. You good? You all right? <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> it's like the third time. Um, But um, desires, okay. 
So you may ask yourself, well, I want what I want. I am what I am. How do I, how do I change that? How do I change what it is that I want? And Psalm 37.4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And a lot of us will read that from a prosperity mindset and say, well, Lord, I really want that new, uh, that new Corvette, that C8, the engine in the center. I like that. That'd be really cool to have. That's the desire of my heart, and I want you to give it to me. And David, the psalmist, who ironically wrote this, would say, no, it's not about that. It's not about what you want. It's about him giving you the desires. It's about him changing what it is that you naturally desire, because only he can do that. And so if you're sitting here and question number one, you're like, why do you want what you want? You're like, I don't know. Well, that's a great starting point to be at. And so where you can go is, Lord, Lord, change my desires. Lord, what, what do you want me to want? What do you want me to focus on? What ministry in the church do you want me to be involved in? Come ask me after service. I've got three or four opportunities for you. Um, but what does the Lord want you to want? And if you ask him, he will give it to you. And that's one of the few things, well, not one of the few things, but that's one of those things that when you ask him, he'll just give it to you, right? We all wonder why we don't get things when we pray for them, but we never ask for things like this that actually matter. Never. I was waiting for somebody to be like, actually, no. We, we really don't do that. But if you do that, I promise you he'll give it to you because he promises he'll give it to you. So living by God's spirit means that he will change what we truly desire. That's question number one. That's enough right there in and of itself to think about for the week, but I got two more. Question number two, does your life need a mask to look like something that it actually is not? When we read both of these stories in parallel, we see that one key element in both of them is that there's a cover-up in both stories. Adam and Eve, they sewed fig leaves for garments because they realized they were naked. They wanted to cover themselves. They hid in the garden when God came and was looking for them. They hid away from him. And then David, when he does what he does, he's like, oh, no, i got to cover this up. And a bunch of people die, right? There's Cover-up is, is a thing. And for all of us who have ever made a poor decision, my hand is up, right? I've got one sitting in my garage area right now that I've been working on. <laughs> Another poor decision. Um, but for anybody who's ever made one, we feel the impulse to, to cover it up and make it look like something that it really isn't. And can I say to you that God knows who you really are, and that's what matters. And so we'll never, we'll never get very far in this, this church life thing that we've got going on if we're, if we're too stubborn to let people in on who, who the real you is. You don't have to sugarcoat and gloss over and make things look like something that they're not. It's okay to have failures. It's okay to have shortcomings. It's okay to make mistakes. The mistakes aren't what matter. What matters is what you do after them. But you can never address them. You can never get past them if you don't actually acknowledge that they exist and, and acknowledge that they're a part of your story. Um, the Bible says this, and this, this I thought was like, this is another one. We could park right here forever, and this is a great truth. But uh, both Adam and David rushed to cover up their choices, but Paul has a different message in mind when it comes to, to, to living within the church. Paul urges us to be transparent with our brothers and sisters. He says this, Therefore, conf confess your sins one to another. Did you catch that? Not to God, which is something that we should also do, but to one another. When was the last time that you confessed something 
to a fellow brother or sister that you've just been holding on to that nobody knows about but you. This is what Paul is urging us to do. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Paul's saying, listen, if you want healing, if you want victory, if you want those scars that you're holding on to to heal, you got to be transparent with one another. You gotta, you gotta put it all out there. Not like on Facebook, right? Don't be one of those people that airs all your stuff out on Facebook. I mean, you could do that if you want. That's cool. The rest of us like to watch. But um, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. Um, but but be transparent with somebody, somebody in your connect group, somebody who is a fellow believer that you know that you can trust. Confide in somebody and share your sins and your shortcomings with that person. Maybe it's your spouse. I don't know. My wife knows all the dumb choices I make. She's not estranged to any of that. Um, but, but find somebody to be transparent with because that's the recipe that Paul gives. He says, hey, listen, if you want healing, if you want to get past it, you've got you to be transparent. Jesus called the Pharisees a word that a lot of us like to use, the hypocrites. He called the Pharisees hypocrites. And what that means in Greek is they are masks. Literally a mask is what that word means. He said, you're whitewashed graves. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Let it never be said that the church is full of hypocrites because we should be transparent with each other. And there shouldn't be skeletons in our closet. They should be on our living room floor, right? For everybody to see. Because it's okay. Our life isn't about what we do. It's about what Jesus did and is doing. We should be transparent. So question number one. Scroll back up here. Uh, What determines your desires? Question number two, does your life need a mask to look like something that it isn't? And uh, finally, question number three, where do your desires normally take you? Desires, decisions, direction. Where, Where does the root, what kind of tree grows from that? What does that look like? And I tell my teenagers this all the time. If you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree, right? You don't grow an apple, you don't grow an orange tree with an apple seed. It just doesn't happen. And so the Bible says it this way too. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Exactly. Y'all know it. And that's the difficult part about this stuff is we know it. We know it, but it's extremely hard to look at this stuff and to live by this stuff. If you plant an apple seed, it's going to grow an apple tree. Where do your desires take you? Let's take an honest look at our lives and take, take a look and see like, well, because I wanted this and I did this, where did that take me? For, for some of you, maybe it ended a marriage. For some of you, maybe, maybe it killed a relationship. And it's easy to look at situations like that and say, like, well, that was because X, Y, Z, and it just kind of was a, we're glossing over our mistakes. We're sugarcoating things that really point back to us. And that's, that's a, a hard reality to accept. But Paul says that's the way that we should live. Paul says that we should be transparent. Paul says that we should lean on one another. We should share that burden with somebody else. Where are your desires taking you? Listen, I don't stand before you as somebody who's never made a poor choice or has done something that has led to bad consequences. I stand before you as another human that is just like you. I've got a family. I've got kids that I'm trying to raise to love the Lord. And I've got a wife that I'm trying to take care of. And I probably don't do the greatest job of that all the time. Um, but I'm trying. And you guys are in the same boat. Everybody's trying to, to do the best with what they have. But this pattern that is present in Scripture, we see it. It's plain to see when you put these two things together. But 
my challenge to all of us today is what are we going to do with that? Are we going to acknowledge it and, and try to and, and allow the spirit to take us a different direction by changing what it is we actually want and what we do? Are we going to do the hard work? Or are we going to say, ah, that's, that's difficult. I think I'm just going to try, try to work within these parameters still. And that sounds like a really dumb thing to say. Like, ah, oh, I'm not going to do the right thing. But we all wake up and we make a decision like that every single day. What we're going to do with what the Lord's given us. And so, by way of review, what determines your... Think about these questions this week, for real. Because I, I was putting this together and I was like, this is heavy stuff. Somebody else should be preaching this message. Not me. Because this is stuff that I need to be working on. What determines your desires? Where do your desires... Norm- oh, skipped one. Uh, oh, sorry. What determines your desires? Does your life need a mask? And where do your desires take you? The Bible says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. That tree in the garden that Adam and Eve never got to partake of is what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs when he's talking about a right desire being fulfilled, a desire that the Lord gives you. And you say, Lord, I'm, I just I want to want what you want, and I want to do the things that you want because I want the world to know Jesus through me. Proverbs says, when you do that, and that desire is fulfilled, and the Lord does something through that, that is a tree of life. And when Scripture talks about a tree of life, it is a whole matrix of ideas that basically mean, like, that's it. That's human purpose. That's peak fulfillment. And we live in a world of people that, that, that say they don't feel like they have purpose. They don't feel like their lives are fulfilling. Why? Because they don't have what the Lord would want them to do. They don't have those desires. And we as the church, we've got the word of God. We've got the Holy Spirit. But we're not, we're not pursuing what, and, and asking him what he wants from us because we're, we're too consumed with how he can help us with what we want. That's what we pray for. Lord, help me in this situation. Lord, help me get this. Lord, help me with fill in the blank. But it's never about, Lord, help me serve you better. Lord, help me to reflect Jesus into the world better. Let us be a church that, that prays for that. The definition, man, my mouth is just not working today, y'all. I'm sorry. I think I'm speaking in tongues. That's probably actually what's happening. Um, so pray for me. Maybe it'll happen more. I don't know. Um, but the definition of insanity is, is to continue trying the same thing and expecting what? Different results. And we look at this pattern and we see, okay, Adam and Eve, same mistakes. And if you look back, you can say Noah made the same mistakes. Abraham made the same mistakes. Moses made the same mistakes. David made the same mistakes. And, but yet, in our lives, every day, it's, we're doing the same thing. We are clinically insane, according to our own definition, because we are guilty of trying the same thing over and over and over again. Thank you, Roy. Appreciate that. Giving me some emphasis in the back with my hand motions. Um, but we're guilty of it. We're, you know, let's not, be, let's not be insane today. If we truly desire to break the cycle of sin and chaos in our life, Jesus is the only way. I read this this week, and I just wanted to put this in here because when I read it, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks, and hopefully it has the, the same result for you. Uh, but Jesus said this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read that and I'm like, whoop, that was a lot, sorry. Um, I read that and I was like, man, you know what? There's really nobody else that I would want to do this journey of life with other than Jesus. Because nobody else offers that kind of grace and companionship and commitment. If there's anybody that I want to yoke up with and do life with, it's Jesus. Because he's, he's the only one that's ever not fallen into that pattern. He's the only one that's never taken for himself and been selfish. Quite the opposite. Jesus is the one who saw us in our, our desperate, sin-sick state. And instead of deciding to wiping us out in the flood and finishing us off, he decided to have mercy. And fast forward through that, he decided to take on flesh and to take, a, take a, and bear a penalty that was not his to bear and bore it on our behalf. And he bore the consequences of our own behaviors as well. He did all of that so that we could be free from that. And he is the one that looks at us today, 2,000 years later after saying that very passage right there, and he says, come. Come and follow me. Come and partner with me. Come and yoke up with me. That promise is still just as good today as it was then. It is just as, just as much, there's just as much power in it now as there was then. And so my urge for you today is a very simple one, but also very complicated, is I'm urging all of you to follow and yoke up with Jesus today. That is my ask. That is my request. And it's really not mine. It's Jesus. He's the one extending the invitation. Come and follow me. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.